I love 1 Timothy in all seriousness. I love 1 Timothy. It's a precious, precious text to me. Uh, the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus were ones that I, I read a lot in the lead up to planting Westside specifically because I believe this is Paul writing to young pastors then and everything he wrote to young pastors then. Uh, I needed to be put, in, uh, put into place as well as a, a guy looking at starting a ministry. And so um, having this opportunity of walking through this text is just fantastic. So if you don't have your Bibles open yet, take them out, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6, and we're looking as what was, what was read the first, first 10 verses of that chapter. By the way, can I just say this from the standpoint of praying for your leaders, and I'm not here to talk about this, but I just think it's great, and it's good to see Doc Golan up here again. We have some history from my days back at Willingdon, but... Um, the statement that there is no leader that hasn't been raised up by God, I know, you know it, it, it raises concerns in some people's eyes. Um, it, it is a truth. Uh, we see Jesus saying that to Pilate, none other than Pilate, who had the authority of sending Jesus to the cross. Jesus says, you wouldn't have this authority unless it was given by my Father in heaven. We see this in Romans 13 as well, that, that God raises up leaders. And, and again, I know this is concerning for, uh, for some in the church. Just how does that work? The sovereignty of God and our leaders, some of our leaders are just clowns. So what's going on? How does that take place? Here, here's why I, I want to take just 30 seconds to talk about this. It, it, in fact, should comfort us. Because what it does is it reminds us that God's in control. That there is someone supreme, someone sovereign over our leaders. And in today's world, we need to remember that. You know, so when we're looking around and we're watching this, listening to this, looking at that person, reading that tweet and going, what's going on? We need to remember God is supreme. He is in control and all things will work together for good for those who love Christ Jesus. So, so be encouraged, and I'm encouraged by you praying for our leaders. It's a good reminder, and as, as Doc Golan says, this is the, this is the will of God. Here, here's uh, where we're going this morning, back to our text. Uh, if you're taking notes and you like taking notes and you have a place in your bulletin to take notes, here's the big overarching idea of what we're going to look at today. Our relationships with Jesus, here's the big idea, our relationships with Jesus should change things. That's the big idea. Now, that's not a revolutionary thought. I get it, right? That's not deep. It's not the deepest thing that you'll ever hear, but that is the big overarching idea that we see in this text as we see in many texts as we walk through the entire book of 1 Timothy. But even though that's not a a revolutionary thought, it is one that gets forgotten, that, that as we follow Jesus, our life should change. Things in our lives should change, which in these 10 verses includes our attitude towards work. That's number one. So if you follow Jesus, your attitude, my attitude toward work, and especially those we work with and under should change. That's number one. The second is our relationship with money should change. If you're a follower of Christ, your relationship towards your money, same with me, should change. Those two topics bookend these 10 verses. Verses 1 and 2 is about work, and verses 6 to 10 is about money. In the middle, what Paul does is he reminds this church about the infiltration of false teaching and 
and the teachers that, that promote things that are contrary to the Word of God. This is something that Paul does and has done already in this letter in the first chapter and in the fourth chapter. But again, as he closes things off, he reminds them yet again of the, of, of the infiltration of these individuals. And so I'm not going to spend a lot of time in the middle portion of this text, but I will hit it a little bit by way of reminder. So really simple outline today. We're going to look at work. We're going to look at money, be reminded about some false teachers. So let's, let's get things going by considering how following Jesus should change our attitude towards work. Let me read verses 1. In the first part of verse 2 again, I have, a more, I have a more recent translation of the ESV. It translates the word slaves with bond servants. Um, and so I'll talk a little bit about that with you, have to, um, and we'll have fun doing it. Verses 1 and 2, let all, Paul writes to Timothy, let all who are under a yoke as bond servants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Let's just stop there. So right out of the gate we're presented with a problem, right? Like there is a big problem. If, you've, if you're kicking the tires of Christianity and you've walked in here today for the first time and you hear us read that, you're going, what is this place? Because what it seems is that Paul gives a big thumbs up to the idea of masters and slaves, that he's okay with slavery. In fact, in verse 2, Paul re- he refers to believing masters. Like, I don't know if you've underlined that. I highlighted that in my Bible. He refers to believing masters, and in the same verse, he calls them beloved. Is that even possible? Is it possible to be a faithful Christian and own slaves? I mean, is that, is that possible? I mean, how do, we, how do we deal with this? Because it is troubling, and it does, again, present us with some, with some problems. Just, just so you know, and I'm, I'm sure you get this, I'm sure some of you have, have seen this in your own study, it's verses like this, verses 1 and 2, that led to some in the church in the 18th and 19th centuries to use, they use these verses to support the idea of Christians owning slaves. And I I get it. I get why they would because it seems here that, that Paul is okay with it, that he doesn't condemn the practice here and seems to affirm it by telling slaves to be good slaves. What What do we do this with this? And And how do we make the leap of using these two verses, as I will, and many others have before me, in talking about work of all things? I mean, that seems disrespectful. It it, it seems crazy. I mean, if you want to improve your workplace environment, do you look to the relationship between slaves and masters as a model to follow? Well, of course you don't. So, So how can I and why do many others do it. 
as we're going to do in a couple of minutes. Well, a few things to note on the front end that will help us. First, and I want you to remember back to chapter 1. Because in chapter 1, Paul condemned the type of slavery we most often have in mind. Chapter 1, verse 10, when we, when we think of slavery. Paul, back in chapter 1, verse 10, talks about enslavers. Just note that word in verse 10. If you use the NIV translation, it uses the expression or the the title slave traders. He refers to them, when he uses that type of language, to those who who force people into slavery. Uh, The idea of what we think about when we think of slavery today, 18th, 19th century slavery, taking someone captive and selling them against their will. And what Paul says back in chapter 1 is those types of people have no place in the kingdom of God. No place. In other words, if, if you think you can be a devoted, faithful follower of Jesus and practice enslavement, you're deceiving yourself. You, you have no place in the kingdom of God. And therefore, going back to chapter 6, the slavery he refers to there is a slavery of a of a different sort. And, and when I say that, I know what that sounds like. Because slavery of any sort is not how things should be. I, I would agree with you if that's your thought when I say that. But more importantly to our text, Paul would agree with you too. Slavery of any sort has no place in the kingdom of God. It's not the way things should be. Now, we'll get back to that. We'll unpack a little bit more about what's going on in the context of this writing. But it's important to understand that there's a difference between the slavery that we have in mind, what Paul talks about in chapter 1, and the slavery in chapter 6. And so the type of slavery that Paul is referring to in chapter 6 is most appropriately associated with the giving or the selling of oneself to another. A, a type of relationship that is expressed in, in, in the translation that I'm using, and I would say the translation that you are using too, as you consider what the word is in the original language, a type of relationship that is expressed with the word bond servant. It's the Greek word doulos. And it speaks of a voluntary type of, of relationship, a relationship where one bonds themselves to another as their servant. Now the question is, why would anyone do that? Well, there are a lot of reasons why they would do that. First, because they were in debt, perhaps, would be a reason. You were in debt to a person, so to pay that debt off, you would bond yourself to them, come under them, serve them, and pay the debt off that way. That was one common way at the time that they did. Or you couldn't take care of your family like you wanted. And so when you looked at another individual who perhaps had much more means than you did, you saw that as an opportunity for you and your family to do better in life. So you would bond yourself, you would come under under their leadership. Uh, There is an author and historian by the name of Murray Harris. He wrote a book on first century Greco-Roman slavery, where in it he says the following. In the first century, slaves were not distinguishable by race, speech, or clothing. They looked and lived just like everyone else and were not segregated from anyone else in society. In many cases, slaves were more highly educated than their owners and in many cases held high managerial positions. 
From a financial standpoint, slaves made the same wages as free laborers and were not themselves usually poor and accrued enough capital to buy themselves out and very few were slaves for life. Most expected to be manumitted or set free after 10 years or by their 30s at the latest. In contrast, he writes, 18th and 19th century slavery was race-based for life and was through kidnapping and force. And therefore, understanding all of this is why why this type of slavery that Paul refers to in chapter 6 is often likened to an employee-employer type relationship with one really important caveat. It's vital. The slave was still owned by the master. Now, I know sometimes in our jobs we feel like slaves to our bosses. This was reality. They were owned, they were the property of their master, even though they were in this type of relationship. And therefore, if you had a bad master, such was life. You you had no recourse. You were their property. So there is that difference between the two. So this comparison breaks down at a at a point, as Paul writes in verse 1, he speaks of it being a yoke of slavery. So it is different. Again, it breaks down. It breaks down at a certain point. And therefore, the, the comparison between slave and employee is unfair at certain levels. But it does work. And I think it is helpful, which is why while writing this understanding that, that this breaks down, this comparison is why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7 that if you can gain your freedom, writing to slaves, avail yourself that opportunity. So even if you're a bondservant, if you can get out, get out. Before we tackle some principles coming out of these verses, this is, and again, this is, I know I'm taking my time here, but it's really important that we understand the context. At the time of this writing, in first century Rome, especially under the authority of the Roman Empire, it, was, it suggested that one-third of all people who lived at the time were slaves. One out of three. One out of three, one out of three in slavery, either as bond servants or some by force because of Rome's overthrow. That, the, the reason I point that out is that is the reality of the time. That's what's taking place. So in a room like this, a couple hundred people, 60 of you, slaves. With some owners, some masters. Why am I pointing that out? I'm pointing that out because that's the demographic. That's the demographic of the time. I'm pointing that out because that's the world in which the gospel dropped into. So the gospel drops into this community made up with these people. So what do you think happened? Slaves came to Jesus in droves. They heard the message. They came to Jesus. So too did masters. They hear this message. Makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, again, that's the demographic. It would be like having a church in North Van. You have the gospel to proclaim, and nobody in North Van comes to Jesus. That that wouldn't make sense. This is your demographic. People in North Van need to come to Jesus. So when you drop this gospel message into this context, slaves come to Jesus because there's so many of them. Masters come to Jesus because there's so many of them. That's why Paul addresses this, not just here in 1 Timothy, but in other places as, as well. He has to. It's a common occurrence. In fact, the book of Philemon is written to a slave owner 
who, who has a slave who, who flees from him, and Onesimus is his name, he, he butts up against Paul, comes to Jesus, Paul sends him back to Philemon. In other words, there's a book in the Bible named after a slave owner. Like, remember that. This is a big deal. This is a big deal at the time. So slaves are coming to Jesus. The gospel's making inroads. Masters are coming to Jesus. And so Paul addresses it. So with all of that as background, important background, and admitting to some of the comparison limitation between slave and employee, let me still offer some principles found in verses 1 and 2 that should guide us in our workplaces. Here's principle number one if you're taking notes. If you work for a non-believing boss, you need to treat them with honor. That's principle number one. That's verse one. Treat them with honor. How do you do that? How do you treat your non-believing boss with honor? Really simple. Be a great employee. Be a great Employee. What does it look like to be a great employee? Work hard. Show up on time. Don't cut corners. Don't grumble. Don't gossip. Don't steal supplies, right? Don't take paper home that's not your paper. Those types of things. Put in an honest, hard day's work. Don't call in sick when you're not. But most of all, how do you honor your boss who isn't a follower of Christ? Don't look down on them because you're a Christian and they're not. That's Paul's counsel to us in verse verse 1. In other words, work, hear me, Work like your relationship with Jesus, your following Jesus has had an impact on this part of your life. Especially in how you relate to others and especially how you relate to people you work under. But that kind of leads to another question, why? Why should we? Paul answers those questions. The first reason why, and I'll give you two primary reasons why, because to not treat your boss with honor discredits your witness. As Paul writes in the second half of verse 1, it'll make the God you worship and the Christian faith that you follow look bad. If, if you're a lousy witness at work by how you work, this is Paul's argument, people will mock you and your God. And and by the way, they may mock you and your God already, even though you are a good worker. But here's Paul's point. If they do mock you and your God at work, don't let it be because you're a lousy employee. Honor them. Work hard. Come under them. But there's a second reason why, and I would call this an ultimate reason why we need to honor those that we work under, especially those or including those bosses who aren't aren't followers of Christ, is because you and I have a divine boss who supersedes our earthly ones, and we all work for him. Paul writes of this in Colossians 3 when writing there, bond servants, slaves, do losses, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Now, here's why I think Paul says that. 
Some of you have bosses right now don't even know you exist. Haven't given you a raise, give you no titles, no keys to the washroom, all that kind of stuff. They don't treat you well. You don't even know if they've ever just noticed you. And here's what Paul is saying. Your divine boss notices you. So even if you don't get the accolades and the raises and and all of the applause, you will receive your inheritance from someone who is supreme over them. You are serving the Lord Christ. So that's principle number one. Honor your non-believing boss. Here's the principle that comes out of verse 2. Our second, second of two. If you work for a believing boss, you should serve them even better. As he writes in verse 2, serve them all the better and don't be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Why would that even be a thing? Why would you disrespect your boss even though you're brothers? Well, let me see if I can explain this. Just imagine. Your relationship with your boss begins both as unbelievers. He's an unbeliever, she's an unbeliever, you're you're an unbeliever. At, At that point, your relationship is really clear. He, she, boss, me, employee. Mr., Mrs. Smith, right? How are you? Good to see you. Can I get anything for you? That type of relationship. Then one day, both of you come to Christ. Fantastic. So no longer is he, she, just your boss. Family. Isn't that great? Family. Brother, sister, brother, brother. That's that's fantastic. And then Paul, hear what Paul says. Paul says this in Galatians 3.28. In the kingdom of God, there is neither Jew nor Greek. Male or female. Slave nor free. And you hear that as an employee, and you're fired up. Next day at work, you come in, you say, hey boss, by the way, can I call you Jimmy? Right? I'm going to call you Jimmy from now on. You know me and you are family. You're not my boss, you're, you're a brother, you're a sister, whatever the context. Things are different now. Why actually don't you go get me a coffee? Jimmy, my brother and sister in Christ. That's what Paul is talking about. Paul is talking about disrespecting based on the familial relationship. And he says, don't do that. For you're using your shared relationship with Jesus as an excuse for insubordination and disrespect. That's his point. You're not using your freedom in Christ to serve, but as an allowance not to. And that shouldn't be. Why? For you're serving a fellow Christian. You're serving a family member. You're serving someone who is beloved. And therefore, your motivation for service should actually be amped up. See, here's my encouragement. If you work for a Christian boss, business owner, or something like that, serve them really well. It's hard to be a faithful Christian boss and or business owner today. And the last thing they need is a a brother or sister in Christ using that familial relationship as a a, a license to be a lousy employee. Just don't do it. 
That's Paul's counsel. That's principle number two coming out of verse two. Additionally, and I'll just say this as, as some helpful advice, take it from an old man speaking perhaps to people that, that are starting out in life and, and just getting going in maybe a, a particular workplace. If you've been less than a stellar employee up to this point, go and apologize if you need to. Own it and determine by God's grace that you'll be the best employee that you can be. It's, the reason why I say that is it's not too late to restore your witness and, and to have your light shine where you work. Now, now before moving on from this point in this discussion about work, it, it's important to know that Paul has a lot to say about and two bosses as well. He just doesn't do it here. But suffice it to say, if you're a boss, then your walk with Jesus should impact the way you carry out that role as well. See, what's really interesting about Paul is he addresses slaves, bond servants, and he also addresses master's bosses. And what he says to the, to the slave, to the, to the servant, to the employee, is don't simply treat your boss like a brother or sister, but also as a boss. To the boss, what he says to them is, don't just treat your brother or sister like an employee, but like a brother or sister. Which sometimes can get messy. It can get really messy because it's confusing because you've got to wear a bunch of hats. Um, up until July 1st, I, I have been a boss for 14 years in a ministry. I actually had three hats to wear. I had a boss hat to wear. I had a pastor hat to wear. And I had a brother brother to a sister, brother to a brother hat to wear as well. When, when you're leading a staff, that can get really messy because sometimes you got to talk to some of your staff like a boss and sometimes you have to talk to them like a, a pastor and sometimes you have to talk to them like a, a brother or a sister. It gets really messy if you have to let one of these people go. Why? Brothers and sisters in Christ don't do that to brothers and sisters in Christ. That doesn't happen. And so you have to be reminded, they have to be reminded, I have to wear this hat too. Again, that's Paul's counsel here. Yes, brother, sister, Christ, boss, that's great. Relationship, come together. But understand the position, the role that God has given you in that equality. So that's our first of our two bookends. Our relationship with Jesus should change our attitude towards work. Here's our second. Second of two bookends. Our relationship with Jesus should change our relationship with money. Uh, Take a look at your text. Just drop in again on on chapter 6. And take a look at verse 2. Verse 2 is kind of broken up. And the second part of it begins a a new section. A new section where Paul is making a, a turn for home. He's beginning to wrap up this letter. And what he does here, before he addresses the topic of money specifically, is he, he reminds Timothy yet again of the danger of false teachers to the church. He, he does here, as I said in my intro, what he's already done in chapter 4 and what he's already done in chapter 1. In fact, this was the topic that Paul chose to speak on when he addressed the elders, perhaps former elders of this church, all the way back in Acts chapter 20, if you remember that text. So he hits this topic again and again and again. He repeats himself. And and you know what? I kind of appreciate that he does this. 
because he reminds me of myself. He, he reminds me of, of raising our kids, my wife and I. I, re, I remember when we sent our kids to camp for the first time. You know what that's like, right? If you have a kid and you send to camp, what you do is in the lead up, three, four, five weeks out, you start talking about camp and you start talking about those things that are really important that they remember, right? Brush your teeth, go to the bathroom every day, watch where your clothes are, don't leave your stuff hanging around. If you're carrying money, hide it. You need it for, you know, the sugar shack or whatever you call it, right? You do that. You remind them, you remind them. Three weeks out, same thing. Two days out, same thing. You're driving them to the camp. And you go, remember, brush your teeth every day. You got to go to the bathroom. Make sure you take your clothes, take care of your clothes, right? Watch your cash, all that kind of stuff. Why? Because you care for your family. These are important points. These are huge points of emphasis. And I want to make sure you get it. That's what Paul's doing here. He loves the family. And and as as he closes things off, he's going, remember, false teachers. Remember those people that will be rising up within the church. Remember the danger of them. That's what he's doing here. That's why he's repeating himself. But what do we do with this repetition? What do we make of it? Well, at the very least, we need to heed his call, but we also need to share his heart. We need to be on guard too. If this is a point of emphasis for Paul, that by itself should stand out to us. We we need to be on guard within the body. Here's the question. Did they heed his advice? This this repetitive repetitiveness. That's a tough word. Did they heed his his advice? Well, the answer to that is, is yes. In fact, they heed his advice so well that that no one less than Jesus commends them for it. Jesus writes a letter to them through John. And he states in Revelation 2, his letter to the church in Ephesus, this same letter, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. So I know this. I commend this. Big thumbs up from Jesus to this church. Good for them. For too many churches don't. But when I take you to Revelation 2, and I read Jesus' commendation, what floats near the surface? What, what, what else did Jesus highlight about this church, in addition to the commendation of heeding the advice, this repetitive advice of, of Paul? Well, what we are reminded of there is that whatever we do individually and corporately, not done out of love, profits us nothing. A church that guards the gate really well but has not love, Jesus says, I'll tear it out. I'll tear it out. It's no good. Which is why Paul as well, in his letter to the church at Philippi, writes, writing out a prayer in chapter 1, my prayer for you is that your love and your knowledge with discernment would abound more and more. We need it both. Westland, you need them both. 
Love without knowledge is dangerous. Our world talks about love all the time. Love without knowledge is dangerous. Knowledge without love is heartless. Knowledge without love is a clanging gong and amounts to nothing. And so, yes, they heeded his advice, but they lost their love over time. May it not be with you, me, and other ministries that are faithful to the proclamation of the gospel. Quickly, very quickly. How how can you and I spot a false teacher? I'm doing this by way of reminder. I said I'd gloss over this, but I still want to highlight a couple of things. What marks them? Well, Paul answers here. Number one, what marks them? They're teaching. They're teaching, obviously. Their teaching won't jive with the teachings of Jesus and the apostles. And therefore, their teaching, as he says in verse 3, won't, it won't produce godliness. We'll come back to that word godliness when we close. But it doesn't produce godliness. We'll ask the question, what is godliness, in fact? But here's a second mark, their character. If you remember back in chapter 3, and just hang a left in your Bible and go back to chapter 3. Back in chapter 3, Paul gives the qualifications for an elder. Let me remind you of what it says. Uh, let me read verses 2 and 3 and 6. Therefore, an overseer and elder must be above reproach, husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Drop down to verse 6. He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Go back to chapter 6. For what we have in chapter 6, verses 3 and 5, is the antithesis of that list. Just notice it. And keep in mind what we just read in chapter 3. If anyone teaches a different doctrine, does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the teaching that accords with godliness, hear it, he's puffed up with conceit. He understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, constant friction among the people who are depraved in mind, deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Again, it's the antithesis. The contrast between those who are qualified and those who are not. And, and, and how do you know if someone is qualified in the church to be an elder? Top of the list, character, integrity, Christ-likeness, more than anything else. Integrity, character in the marketplace, integrity, character at home. That's the, qualif- that's the resume. And Paul says their character will show them. Lastly, and this will spur us forward with a few minutes that we have remaining, what marks them is their love of money. Paul writes that they will imagine that godliness is a means of gain. As J.I. Packer says, they are faking it for money's sake. And if it's good enough for Jimmy Packer, it's good enough for us, it should be. And it's at this point where Paul launches into a discussion about money and how our relationship with it should be different saying, and just notice verses 5 and 6, saying that in contrast to seeing godliness as a means of gain, seeing great gain in godliness itself. In verse 5, godliness is seen as a means to an end. In verse 6, godliness is the end. To put it another way, Paul is saying that it is very profitable 
to not pursue wealth and to pursue godliness instead. That's what he's telling us here. Why? Why? With the couple of minutes that we have remaining, why? Why is it not profitable to pursue wealth now? I, I, I talked on this subject. I'm getting hit with this subject a lot. I taught on this subject in part last week, the discussion about money. And it's a vital one, obviously. But why? What's wrong with spending your whole life pursuing money? What's wrong with that? We need money. Money's a tool, right? You can do so much good with money. Da, 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 da. So why? What's the big... What's the big deal? Well, let me give you some reasons why, and it's found in the verses that follow. Here's the first reason. Look at verse 7. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. There's, there's reason number one. It's a simple truth, but don't miss its significance. In its simplicity, we come in naked and we go out naked. That's his counsel. That the person who spends his or her life pursuing money and things goes out exactly the same way they came in. That's number one. You spend all of your money and you take nothing with you. Or spend all of your life pursuing money, you take nothing with you. There are things that you can't take with you, by the way. You can store up treasures in heaven. You can give your life pursuing that now. And when you get to the other side, it will profit you there. As Paul talks about earlier in the book of 1 Timothy... Physical training has some value, but godliness has value not only now, but in the life to come. So that's reason number one. A second reason is seen in verse 8. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. This is Paul saying Christians should be content with the simple necessities of life which again begs the question I've asked already a number of times. Why? How is that even possible that we can be content? Well, let me give you several reasons why again very quickly. First, because when you have God near you and for you, you don't need extra money or extra things to give you peace and security. Hebrews 13 verse 5, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I'm always there. I'm always enough. Secondly, because the deepest and most satisfying pleasures God gives us are the free gifts of loving relationships with Him and people. That's why He invites us in Isaiah 55 verse 1 to to a meal that costs us nothing. It's free. Third, Because we could invest the extra that we make for what really counts. Uh, I don't know who's going to hit verses 16 and 17, um, or 17, excuse me, and 18 in chapter 6. I don't want to take away their thunder, but let me just read what Paul's counsel is for the rich in the church and what it should be. Verse 17, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, be rich in good works, and, hear this, to be generous and ready to share. So if you make money and have a lot of money, what Paul is saying, that's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. But you need to steward it well, and you need to live with the same contentment everybody is called to live by, and one of the benefits of that is 
you have lots to share. As someone named John Piper has said, you ever heard of John Piper? As someone named John Piper has said, the problem isn't making money, the problem is keeping it. To, to building bigger barns and storing it. Jesus calls that foolish. As I, has, as I have asked over the years, what gives you greater joy? Walking into a mall with $500 to spend or walking into a church with $500 to give? Do we truly believe that it's more blessed to give than receive? That's Paul's counsel. This is Christian. Your relationship with money should be different. The, the final reason, and I'll wrap up with this, final reason why we shouldn't give a life pursuing money, remember the reason, number one, we take nothing with us. Number two, we, we're called to be content because we have so much more now by way of our relationship with, with God himself and his people. But here's the final reason. We shouldn't pursue wealth because it will end in the destruction of our lives. That's verses 9 and 10. And I want you to notice that verse 9 doesn't say that those who desire to be rich may fall into temptation. It says those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. It's a certainty. If you desire to be rich, you will succumb to temptation, a desire that will get manifested. And you see the list there, evil deeds, snares, and cravings that cause some to wander from the faith. So that's why. Two questions as I wrap up. First off, two very important questions. First is, what, what is the love of money? Paul, Paul calls and refers to the love of money here. I read a text out of Hebrews 13 that speaks about how we are to keep ourselves from the love of money. Jesus himself in the Sermon on the Mount says you can't love God and money, hate one, love the other, and vice versa. So what is the love of money? Simple definition. I paraphrase this from somewhere that I, I borrowed it from. A, a love of money is a condition of the heart. It's a condition of the heart and the reason why I say it's a condition of the heart, because where your heart is, so your treasure will be. It's a condition of the heart that finds greater joy, pleasure, and security in money than it does in the intimacy and relationship with God. So with that as a definition ringing in our ears, we, we, we need to check our hearts, do we not? Because we can spin things all sorts of ways. I've talked to people, I've spinned things in my life all sorts of ways. But where do you find greater joy? Where do you find greater pleasure? Where do you find greater peace? Where do you find greater security? In God or your portfolio? Second question. What is godliness? What is godliness? What is that? Well, first of all, it's a huge theme of Paul's writings. The, the word godliness comes up again and again in the pastoral epistles, but you'll see it in other places too. So what, what is godliness? Well, if, if you take a poll in the church, what many, will what many people will say is, well, godliness is godly living. It's living like God wants you to live. It's more than that. I mean, just drop down, take a look at verse 11, and I know my time is done, but look at verse 11. 
where Paul writes there, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, so right living, godliness, number two. So, so it's, yes, there's an aspect of, of right living, godly living, but it's more than that. What is it? It's a God-centeredness. It's, it's a God-towardness. It's, it's, yes, living how God wants you to live, but living how God wants you to live, coming out, flowing out of your relationship with Him. Where everything you do isn't simply because you're obeying or kicking and screaming, doing it, or trying to please your parents. All of those things may be good reasons to do things and not do things, but it's deeper than that. It's this abiding, using John 15 language, where, where the sap of Jesus, the vine, is flowing through you, and everything you do from the moment you wake up to the moment you go down at night is for Him. That's godliness. Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, that we have been given everything by the power of God for godliness in this life. What is godliness? Chapter 3, 1 Timothy, you went through it already. Godliness is Jesus. Jesus in you and through you. That's godliness. It's the life of Jesus being manifested in you and through you. And Westland, that is great gain. Is it not? Giving your life to that is great gain. That is the end. That is the end. That's what we need to give our lives pursuing. That's what godliness is. That's what the love of money is. That's what godliness is. And so there you go, Westland Baptist. Following Jesus should change how we do life, which certainly includes our attitude towards work and our relationship with money. And so as I close, how's work? Are you serving your master there? Are you modeling your master there? The one who came to serve and not be served to the point of death on a cross? And how's your money? The world, riches, and pleasure were God. What do you desire most? If your money could talk, what would it say about you? Let me pray. Uh, Father, one of the beautiful things about the word that you have given us is that it, it doesn't state that God spoke. It states that God is speaking. God is forever speaking. Speaking to us by, by the Bible and the word that we have in printed form. Speaking by way of the Holy Spirit. Speaking by way of creation itself. You speak. The issue is not you not speaking. The issue is, do we have ears to hear? 
We can get very creative in not listening. And so I pray if you're speaking to us, I know you're speaking to us, but specifically about items that come out of this text. And I pray that we would prove ourselves to be good soil. The fourth soil, where the word that has been planted doesn't get snatched. Father, this text is so relevant to us. Work and money, that's for all of us. All of us have things to hear today. So I pray that we would be obedient to the things you're calling us to and from, to the glory of your name and to the betterment of who we are in Christ, this advancement, this, this transformation, us working out as you work in. So pre- please, Father, give us the strength, increase our passion and desire, give us more spirit so that we would yearn to see this more in our lives. Father, I love this ministry. I love Sam. I like the leadership here very much. And so as I close too, I want to pray for a blessing on this ministry. May your spirit rest heavy on this ministry so that this bride of Christ, this local expression of the bride of Christ would make impact in this area of North Van and and to the globe around that you call us to, joining you on your mission to wherever you call us, beginning here and then as we go from here. So bless them, bless this journey that they're on. What a great story. So bless them, I pray. Praying for all of these things in the great name of Jesus. Amen.